Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is David Finkel of the Washington Post, author of two important books that chronicle the lives of U.S. soldiers in Iraq and what happens to them and their families when they come home. David, welcome to Profiles. Thanks, Owen. Like Dexter Filkins, the other long-form storyteller of the Iraq War, you're a graduate of the University of Florida. Is there some connection there, some kind of course that they teach that that provided background for both of you? There absolutely is, but I'm afraid I can't talk about it. (laughs) How did you get to newspapers? Because you were a broadcasting major in in college, although you worked for the uh, Florida Alligator. Right. Well, it was uh, was circuitous. Um, I... Uh, I thought I was going to go into pol- political science, and uh, once I started taking coursework, that wasn't quite happening for me, and uh, I, there were a few other false starts. Uh, I transferred to the University of Florida, and uh, I had a roommate who knew, who knew a guy down the hall who had his own roommate, and that roommate said, come on over and, uh, and see the Florida alligator. And I had never, never thought of newspapers. I like to write, but I didn't read newspapers closely. Um, but I went anyway and walked into this, this room filled with a lot of smart, socially awkward people and immediately felt right at home. And uh, the editor at the time gave me an assignment. Uh, he said, can you rewrite this press release? And, uh, and I took it and I wrote... I wrote what I knew was the greatest piece of journalism of all time. It was just like we were taught in school. It was three paragraphs. It was an introduction. It was a body. And it was a conclusion. (laughs) And I handed it in, and the guy looked at it and threw it away and said, that's not going to fly here. And that was enough to get my interest. What was it about news that that drew you to that career? Well, it was was more about the chance to uh, see things and tell stories. Uh, So that's, that's... I guess one definition of news, right? But this was a time uh, that in Florida there was a new kind of storytelling occurring in newspapers. It was, it was stretching the five W's into something more ambitious and more uh, invested in narrative and storytelling. And these were the early days of it, so there were a lot of bad examples, but there were also some, some just phenomenal examples, so transporting and and. So here was a, I, I picked up a newspaper with certain expectations, and suddenly I was transported into these other worlds, and I thought, this, this becomes possible for a writer now. I want to try to figure out what these folks are doing and, and see if I can do it myself. Was it people at the, at the Florida newspapers, specific people that were promoting this kind of journalism? The Miami Herald was aggressively promoting it at that point, and so was this, it was now the Tampa Bay Times, but the St. Petersburg Times. And there were certain people on staff that those of us in journalism school followed closely. And, uh, and we just studied these pieces and tried to figure out what was going on. And, uh, and again, my, my move, even then as a beginning reporter, was, was to want to tell stories. Because when I read a newspaper, that's, that's what got me into newspapering. It wasn't just the information, but it was uh, evocation as well. So I, I read these things. I Barry Barak, Sarah Reimer, Matty Blaze. Uh, these these people were were masters at this, and and I couldn't figure out how they did it. And over time, I got better at it. In one interview, um, you mentioned that you learned to report uh, when you got hired at the Tallahassee Democrat. Right. Um, what do you mean by learn to report? Well, I came out of college uh, thinking I was a, uh, uh, I knew how to write uh, with some basic reporting skills. And I thought I, was, uh, I had been hired in Tallahassee to be a feature writer. Uh, when I showed up for work, uh, the guy running it said, so we're sticking you on the Metro staff because you need to learn how to be a reporter. And, and I'm so grateful for that because I did. And, and the kind of work I do uh, depends mostly, primarily, on acts of reporting first, that, that I think if the, the, the work I've done over my career, and, and finally, uh, my most recent work, these two books about the Iraq War, uh, they depend, I mean, there's some writing in them, and, and all the things we, w- we would like to achieve as, as long-form journalists, but the basis for everything is reporting. And, and, and I firmly believe that 
that in the stuff I respond to and the stuff I hope to do, that every sentence uh, has some active reporting in it that leads you to the next sentence, whether it's a fact, whether it's an observation. But it's not just spinning yarn or candy that that I'm, I'm, as I get older, I'm getting less and less patient with journalism that depends on writing above reporting. I, I, want, I, I want reporting first, and that's what I want to do as well. Which is more important in re- reporting? Is it observing or asking questions and getting people to talk? Well, for the type of journalism I do, it's, it's asking questions at first and getting people comfortable enough where you fade a little bit, and and then you're observing uh, life as it might be going uh, if you weren't present. And I'm not foolish enough to think that that my presence doesn't have some effect. But I also know from years of doing this that over time, uh, I'm a pretty forgettable character anyway, which is to my benefit. And in this case, uh, the longer I stay, the more I fade, and and, uh, life takes over. You went to the St. Petersburg Times after the uh, after Tallahassee. I did. I was in Tallahassee for a few years, then I went to the St. Pete Times for most of a decade, uh, and then on to the Washington Post. And I've been there since 1990. St. Petersburg Times at that time uh, had considerable resources. How important was that in helping you do the kind of reporting that you have are now? doing and have done since then. Yeah, it's not exclusive to St. Pete. I mean, the Washington Post has some considerable resources, and we're at a moment, well, you know this, but we're at a moment in journalism where journalism always seems to be redefining itself. But this time, it's really trying to redefine itself. And some things will continue. Reporting continues. Storytelling continues. Uh, content matters. But it, it, it gets down to form. Uh, the new forms for these things is in some question. And so is the need for, for speed, for being first. And, and that, those things sometimes work against the type of journalism I do and the type of journalism I, I now edit at the Washington Post, which is long-form, observed, immersion, take-your-time journalism. There aren't a whole lot of places doing that anymore. Uh, the Washington Post, thank heavens for now, uh, continues to think of that as one of its its core missions and and supports a staff of a half dozen reporters who basically do this kind of journalism. Go out, stay, come back, and tell us a, uh, a hell of a story. It's expensive, though. To send a, uh, a reporter out on a story, one of my reporters out on a story now, you know, it's, it's, it's even for a week or two, it's a, it's a few thousand dollars. Uh, that's not a big deal in the, in, the, in the scope of things, but it is a big deal. Uh, because, because in a time of declining profits, there are decisions that have to be made. What do we best spend our money on so we can stay profitable, so we can stay competitive, so we don't lose our footing? And, and that's what I mean, that, that the moment in journalism is one of some pretty intriguing questions. How do we keep producing content that, uh, that does do the things that, to me, narrative journalism ought to do, which is inform, uh, help, pers- help a person understand something viscerally as well as informationally. And I gather the new owner of the Washington Post is willing to put some additional resources into this. Well, kind I of hope work. so. The paper uh, has been owned by the Graham family for an awfully long time. And, and talk about, you know, talking about the luck of the draw, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, a better owner than, than the Graham family. And uh, the day that uh, Don Graham um, announced to the staff that this place he loved so much, this place that has defined his life, that the only way it could really continue in a robust way was for him to step aside and for someone else to take over with, with deeper pockets. That was an interesting moment. And, uh, and you know, Don was, he's, I, I've not met a smarter person, so he was of course, aware of all the ironies and heartbreak and promise of the moment. But it was a, it was a terribly moving day. And, uh, and now, you know, things go on. We have a new owner. Uh, we are considered lucky by, by all of the people who study something for a couple of minutes and seem to know everything, uh, that this is our owner. Uh, and I've got every hope that, uh, that these smart people are right. 
You've spent about half your career on domestic stories and half on international. I think probably we want to concentrate more on the international, but I'd like to ask what uh, story on the domestic side um, are you most proud of? Uh, I'm I'm not going to give you a very good answer. Um, I tend to see uh, my stories as not something to be proud of, but uh, something to learn from. some have been successful, I guess, but you know that, that's a, it should be an easy question, but it's a tough question. Uh, I'm I'm proud of how hard I work on my stories, uh, but but I'm not terribly satisfied with the stories themselves because because even when a, a reader might read the story and 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 think it's fine, but but I kind of know what went into every sentence, and, and it's easy for me to see, oh, yeah, I wish I'd done that a little bit differently. Sort of like making sausage, maybe? Yeah, a little bit, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a little bit different, I think, than many uh, foreign correspondents and war correspondents is coming to it later in, in your career. How did you get um, overseas? Um, it was, a, uh, it was a, a fortunate fluke. Um, I... In 1999, I, uh, in late March, I saw some images uh, on the news one night of, of people who had been pushed out of Kosovo into a field called Blatze at the top of Macedonia, uh, refugees. Uh, and, and the images were compelling. And I went into the paper the next day and volunteered to go over. The, the paper had been covering the Balkans conflict, of course. But I asked, I said, if you need help covering the refugee part of it, I'd like to go. And the paper said, yes, please go. By that point, I had been working for the magazine for a long time, and I was one of the front page writers, but it was all U.S. coverage. And I'd only been overseas once in my life. But they said go. And, uh, and so a couple days later, um, I did go. I arranged uh, uh, for uh, a quick visa. Uh, transport, went over with a photographer, found a fixer, and as it happened a couple days later, there I was in this strange place on this border overlooking this field of refugees that I'd seen on TV a couple of days before. And then I found my way out of the line of reporters, uh, past past the line of police, uh, into the field itself by just kind of throwing myself on a, a cart of bread and water that was headed into the crowd. And uh, it was a uh, you know, for the refugees, it didn't matter. For me, of course, it was a transformative moment because I went away from the line of reporters and found myself deep, deep, deep in this place where it mattered and there weren't any witnesses to what was going on. And I wrote a story about what was going on in the field. And uh, it went in the Washington Post the next day. And then I did another story and two weeks of coverage. Kosovo led um, to... Um, a lot of travel overseas, and eventually coverage of the Afghanistan war, coverage of the beginning of the Iraq war, and finally to my taking a leave from the paper so I could spend the last um, seven years basically writing the story of soldiers in the Iraq war and and what they're facing now as they come home. One of the things that's obviously different between domestic and um, international um, reporting is language. The story you described in Kosovo, you were an observer, but does not speaking the local language affect what you can observe? Well, sure. I mean, trying to report this kind of story with the help of uh, an interpreter, I mean, what's the old thing about Ginger Rogers doing everything backwards or something? The degree of difficulty is amped up. It's, uh, it's I, I, I would find interpreters and, and, and I would say, so when we're doing this interview, I have to tell you I'm not really interested in what the person is saying to me. What you need to do is be my ears and hearing every conversation going on because the thing that's happening over to our right or behind me may be the more interesting thing. That's asking a lot because what an interpreter can do is interpret your question and hear an answer and give it to you. But... So interpreters might work for a certain kind of reporting, but for narrative reporting, scene writing, uh, not so much. And it was was difficult at times. I mean, I did stories at the beginning of the Iraq war where I would find an interpreter and I would would try to get there. And it was was hard. It just, it was unsuccessful. 
So one of the models of journalism for me is a book called Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo. And uh, it's the act of uh, several years of reporting in a slum in Mumbai. And, and this book is, well, it's just a phenomenal piece of reporting, writing, uh, and witnessing. And it is more nuanced and complicated than anything I've been able to produce. And the whole thing was done through an interpreter. It's just the most phenomenal achievement. So every time I think I can complain that narrative life is hard with an interpreter, apparently it's not. You just need to work a little harder. You won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting about Yemen, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess two questions. You had been a finalist before then. What did it feel like to actually finally win? Well, I've been a finalist a bunch of times. And uh, when I finally won, <laughs> I, well, uh, it was nice. It was nice to, uh, to finally win. And I remember one of the years that I was a finalist and didn't win, and another guy at the paper, Henry Allen, did win. And he came up and he said, let me tell you, Finkel, it's a, it's a lot better winning than losing. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out he was right. It's kind of fun to win that thing. It's, uh, uh, and the stories uh, were what, what this is what the Post is capable of and I hope remains capable of. This, is, this was an idea. The managing editor of the paper came up to me and said, so I'd like you to figure out a way to write about uh, – George W. Bush's uh, uh, main foreign policy of democracy promotion. Well, that's a little broad. And I said, what do I do? He said, I want you to take the weekend and I want you to think about it and, and figure a way into it, but to turn it into a story. And so, so often in narrative writing, there are two ways to go. Either there's something happening in front of you where it's a big event and you just find a corner of that story and you kind of drill deep into that corner. The event almost determines the story. But another way is to start with a theme, something abstract, and then think about it and distill it down to a storytelling opportunity. So in the case of democracy promotion, that was my assignment. Uh, clearly, uh, uh, storytelling involves characters, involves tension, involves something happening, how will it be resolved? It involves all the elements of, of a story, generating curiosity, answering a question. So the question became uh, uh, something like, uh, if I could find a project and follow the project from its intention to its conclusion, let's see what happens. Uh, tell the story of a project intended to promote democracy. Uh, and maybe that'll stand in for the larger thing. All right, so this is pretty basic. You know, that's not rocket science, but that was our idea. Well, it turns out it's a big world with a lot of projects. So then we have to whittle it down, and we decide the Mideast is the place to go because of so much of democracy promotion depends on it's, it's it's based on security concerns. And then, so at least I had a region now. And people in the newsroom were saying, "Well, you've got to do Egypt. It's the only place that matters. If you do anywhere else, you're just wasting a reader's time." Other people are saying, well, that's ridiculous because one project in Egypt, it's not going to change anything up or down. Egypt is too big. Maybe there's another more hidden place. Well, the hidden place always appeals to me. And uh, so we came up with Yemen. Security concerns matter. There were democracy promotion efforts underway. I looked at all the projects being funded by the U.S. government to bring democracy to Yemen, and one stood out uh, against all the others. It was this, this ambitious effort to bring some hint of democracy, not to Sana'a, but outside government control into the tribal regions up towards Saudi Arabia, the most restive uh, parts of, of, of Yemen. And some of those sheikhs had approached uh, the National Democratic Institute, NDI, to say, you know, kind of, can you figure out how to do this? So I went to NDI, uh, said, I want to follow this, this thing through. They said, well, you know, we're not really crazy about that, but I guess if we're going to promote democracy, uh, free speech is part of the deal, so we can't really say no. And then uh, off I went to Yemen, where I spent four months watching this project. It was, it was a fascinating place and a fascinating project. And, and ultimately, it, it didn't work, but man, there was a lot of effort put into it. Were the more interesting characters the Yemenis or the Americans? Well, well, there was the woman uh, in Yemen for NDI, Robin Madrid, 
Uh, she was fascinating. I mean, she was so sincere and earnest in trying to help. So it's not one or the other. It's, it's, it's them together. But, but um, there was a day right after I got there that she happened to convene a meeting involving all these sheikhs from around the country. And I didn't have my interpreter yet. So I didn't have any help or any guide. But I go into this meeting a little jet-lagged, and I've got one hour basically to pick a sheikh who I'm going to rest this whole thing on. And, you know, who knows if I'll make the right choice. But there's one guy who stood out, a guy named Rabia. And uh, and he became uh, the great character on the Yemeni side. And thank heavens, he was from a really tough place up by the border. And in the end, you know, he, he was so eager for Americans to see what was happening in his place. And, and the government kept blocking me from getting out of Sana'a uh, into these tribal regions. And I tried and tried, and it wasn't happening. And finally, Rabia uh, called and said, if you can meet me at this house, I'll smuggle you in. And, uh, and he was good to his word. We met him. We got in a, a photographer and I got in the back of this, uh, this truck. And what could have taken maybe 40 minutes on paved road took uh, seven hours off-road until we were past all the checkpoints and into this fascinating tribal territory. And this guy, he was amazing. He started getting so many calls and so much pressure from the government and from also people in his region to get the Americans out of there. And he hosted us as long as he could, as he would be obliged to do in, in, uh, uh, by his birthright. But after a week, he said, I can't do this anymore. We, we got to go. And so, so away we went back to Sana'a. But without him, I wouldn't have gotten there. He was, and why did I get there? Is because it didn't matter where he was from. He just wanted people to see this is what's happening. Forget what you're reading. Come see it. And I remember he said, if you're prepared to see a place, if you're, if you're prepared for people to hate you because you're an American, if you're prepared to see the truth of a place, I will do what I can to get you in. And I said, that's easy. Let's go. And he got me in. One other award that you've won before we go to the, the two main books, um, the MacArthur Award. Mm -hmm. um, some people call it a genius grant, although I'm not sure whether MacArthur does that or not. Um, what does it feel like to get one of those? Well, it's strange. I mean, this is not something you apply for. There was a morning, uh, I think it was late September, uh, and I was up early because I was writing my book, and I was on a, a pretty tough schedule. And, uh, and my cell phone rang, and uh, it's like 7 in the morning, and I answered it. And this woman identified herself, and it's a name I knew, in, uh, a Washington name. And I couldn't understand why she was calling me. Uh, and I thought maybe one of the reporters I edited had done something. But she introduced herself, <laughs> and she said, are you alone? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I am alone. And she said, I'm serious. Are you totally alone? Uh, and I said, so it's just me and a cat and a computer. She said, well, I guess that's good enough. And she goes, have you heard of uh, uh, the MacArthur Fellowship? And I said, yeah. And uh, she said, well, congratulations. You're one of them now. And I said, okay, that's great. Because, of course, this was a fake. It was, it was, it was just a ruse. And, uh, and I was being set up as some kind of great joke. So, so this poor woman who was telling me this wonderful thing you know, I was, I was just so distant. I wasn't buying into it. And at the end, she said, so here's a number to call in Chicago when we're done. They're waiting to hear from you. So I wrote down the number. Like six hours go by. There's no way I'm going to call that number because I'm pretty sure it's connected to the Washington Post newsroom where everyone's just going to bust out and burst out <laughs> laughing. But then, you know, they called. And they said, we're waiting for you to call back. And uh, this is real. And uh, that was... Uh, that was uh, well, you can imagine that's a pretty strange moment, because because this is this is an award. It's 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 not a journalism award, and and I exist in the field of journalism. This was much broader than that, and uh, and uh, it was a little goofy for a couple of days. We'll turn in a minute to talk about your books, but first I invite you to choose a piece of music that you might share with us. I listen to a lot of music, and. And I've listened to uh, 
different pieces uh, at different times uh, in my life, and, and I'm loath to suggest any of them. But I'll, I'll describe a couple if I can. This may be more of an answer than you want. But there was a time when I was in Iraq at the end of, uh, I mean, for the book we'll, we'll be talking about, I spent eight months on the ground uh, in a pretty lousy neighborhood of eastern Baghdad with a, a battalion of infantry soldiers to write about what they were going through. And by the end, because of a series of events, things got so bad uh, uh, that every night <laughs> the way I would go to sleep in my little cot was to make sure the headlamp was over here and the gas mask was there, and then I would, I would read the same chapter of the same book playing the same piece of music every night, and I would, I would drift off. And if I didn't play that music for some reason, everything was a little out of whack. Doesn't that sound crazy? Everything was out of whack, and I couldn't get to sleep. I will not tell you what that song was, but it, was, but it stresses the importance of, of music to me. When I wrote The Good Soldiers, the first book we'll be talking about, I wrote it to try to mimic the rhythms of, of a piece of music that's, that's important. And then when I wrote the second book, I, I had a little Lucinda Williams on in the background as I was writing. So maybe Lucinda Williams song. music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, David Finkel, the author of The Good Soldiers. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Before we started the music, you um, introduced um, the basic structure or the, the, the theme, I guess, of The Good Soldiers. Where does that title come from? Well, the, the, it's the title of a book uh, about not so much the Iraq War, although that was the setting, but, it, but it, it's a book that was intended to be uh, a piece of journalism, but a piece of intimate journalism uh, that would get at the question of what is it to be a young man who goes into a war at a particular moment. Now, the war happened to be the Iraq War, and the particular moment was early 2007. And by that point, as we all know, but we do have to think back now, uh, the war had been through different versions. Um, and in, on January 10th, 2007, George W. Bush went on TV and announced this new thing called The Surge. And at one point, he said, many listening tonight will wonder what the difference will be this time, sort of acknowledging that there have been other attempts to f figure out this war. And then he went on to say, well, here are the differences. And as he enunciated the differences, there was a lieutenant colonel at Fort Riley, Kansas, a guy named Ralph Kosserich, who had just found out that he and his battalion would be going to the surge. Uh, he's home listening to the speech, and he's thinking, we're going to be the difference. My soldiers, my battalion in me. And a few days later, he and, and his band of 800 infantry soldiers, most of them 19, 20, 21 years old, uh, and filled with a young man's invincibility, set off to the surge, knowing that they were going to win the thing. And I went along to write about what would happen to them, not as, uh, not as a way to write about the Iraq War, but to use the Iraq War to write about the character of young men. What happens 
to someone who enters a war at such a moment, the moment of presumed loss and tragedy. And, uh, and then I went to answer the question. The answer was this book, The Good Soldiers, and the title uh, isn't meant ironically. Uh, uh, they, uh, they were pretty good soldiers. And, uh, and when they came home, uh, they remained good soldiers, although by the time they came home, the definition of what good really means had, had changed quite a bit. Um, we can talk about the book all you want, but that was the idea to just answer that, use the war to answer the question of the character of a young man. You're probably twice as old as most of those soldiers. Um, yeah, thanks for noticing. <laughs> How did you gain their trust? It took a while. I, I mean, Kosslerich was game to go. Um, he said, come on over, but, but the soldiers themselves uh, uh, weren't crazy about having a a reporter in their midst, um, and understandably, they—it's not like people really know what a what a journalist does. Uh, there are a lot of stereotypes, uh, uh, some based on uh, the worst behavior of, of some outlying journalists. Uh, but uh, but they did think uh, widely that I had an agenda. I did not. Um, that I was part of the liberal press. Uh, I am not, uh, that I thought all soldiers were war criminals or baby killers. I did not. However, if that's what had happened during my time with the battalion, then I would have written that story, um, that I had been hired by the commander to write his biography, not true, and, and on and on. There were a lot of rumors about me. Well, what can you do? You know, it's not like I could call everybody together and say, so here's the way, let me tell you about journalism. Uh, please interrupt your war for this discussion. So the way I gained their trust uh, was day by day, bit by bit. By I, and I think the primary thing was that I, I didn't visit this story. I stayed there. Um, uh, I was with them on the ground for eight months. I was a constant presence. And, and my curiosity was genuine, and, and they got to see that. And then when bad things happened, and bad things did happen to this battalion, and I was present at those bad things, and the smoke cleared, and what they saw when they could look around was somebody on the perimeter taking notes, uh, not being a problem, not screaming, not asking for help, just taking notes or holding out a digital recorder. Then that helped them under, oh, so this is what the guy does. So combined all those things, uh, all the time I spent, a, a, a sincere and authentic curiosity and then being present for bad things and not becoming a problem for them, then, that, then trust developed. But I'm not going to say that everybody was crazy to have me there at the end or to this day or were crazy about it. But, uh, but I think I went a long way toward gaining their trust and, more importantly, telling a story that accurately reflected what they went through. Were you able in some way to persuade them that you um, understood what the Army was about? At one time, many war correspondents had served in the draft. So yeah, they had had right. the experience and, and they knew what a uh, squad was, what a platoon was, what a company was. Uh, I mean, those are kind of very basic things. But right. Yeah. But going into it, I didn't even know the basic things. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to have gotten my lottery number in Vietnam, but, but it was a high number and I didn't serve. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, history of service in my family. So when I went into this, um, I didn't know a whole lot. But yeah, I think it's a mistake of a reporter to act as if he knows what he doesn't know. Um, that it's it's genuine and and maybe a little disarming uh, to be candid. And and so I would say I, I, I you're talking about a battalion. I need to understand how that's different from a brigade. Okay, so maybe the guy will think, well, what a moron. He's never going to get this. On the other hand, he may think, well, the guy's making a genuine effort to understand. And he's asking questions, and he's very interested in my answers. And I, I prefer to think, in most cases, the, the second interpretation of what ruled the day. I, I didn't know a lot. I don't know a lot. Um, but I know enough to ask what I think I need to know about and listen to the answer. And if I don't understand the answer, then to say, I'm sorry, this is important. Can you say it again until, until I think I get it right? One of the noticeable parts of the book um, with the various attacks, the, the descriptions, uh, 
of what happens to the soldiers and their bodies are extraordinarily graphic. Um, it's not done, been done in previous wars. Was it hard to, to observe it and then write it? Yes and yes, but, but let's talk about the writing part of it. There are a few things uh, I've, I, I've come to believe uh, absolutely about writing, and one is the louder the story, the quieter the writing should be. Uh, and war is a pretty loud story. So how do you how do you write these scenes uh, that that involve uh, some trauma, injury, or death in a way that that might feel elevated? I guess is might be a word that that it it doesn't descend into what kind of writers dismiss as war porn. Um, and you know, like all porn, I guess you know it when you see it, right? It's 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 sort of uh, it's this writing that just seems to take such pleasure in, in gory descriptions. It goes overboard, and it's off-putting, and I think it's disrespectful. Um, so and there's no perfect standard, but there's my standard in my mind of when it's going too far. So on one hand, I want to write authentically, but at the same time, I don't want to write so over the top that it becomes uh, revolting, uh, repulsive. So it's always, in writing, it's always trying to walk that fine line. And there's no perfect answer. You know, you and I could witness the same thing. We'll write the same scene. We'll write it in different ways, and, uh, and, and both are just as true. Lack of adjectives, uh, short sentences, uh, being clear-eyed in the description, almost clinical. Maybe that's the way to do it. But that runs against, well, I won't say it runs against, but the, the challenge is do you lose something in telling the story? If you're no, you lose something by going overboard. Then, then you've lost your reader. You know, there's 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 a uh, there's a line in the first book, uh, very difficult to decide whether to include. Uh, it's a quote, and the quote is "That's a toe." The line in the book is "That's a toe," he said. And just very quickly, what was surrounding that was uh, was a, a soldier who had been blown up by a roadside bomb, and there were these. Frantic, frantic attempts in the aid station to save his life, and 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 it was, it was rather vicious CPR uh, going on, and and um, bits of him were dropping to the ground, as 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 this team of doctors and nurses tried to save his life, and at one point a nurse who was sort of tidying up, kicked something on the floor inadvertently, and it kind of went sliding, skidding its way across the floor, and it came to rest against my boot, and the guy next to me. Uh, we were all in line sort of watching this. Uh, the guy next to me looked down. He said, that's a toe. So when it came time to write the book and write that scene, um, to a writer, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a pretty great line because it's specific. Uh, it doesn't rely on adjectives. Uh, it's not gory. It's, it's, it's three words, that's a toe. And it's so specific. It, re- it really is... Uh, if the intent is to transport a reader away from where the reader is and into the thing itself, that line helps accomplish that. But at the same time, this, this, this uh, dear uh, dead soldier is survived by family members who know he has died but don't know the details. And they may come across this book and, uh, and they may read the description of those minutes and they may get to that line. And, uh, and the line that may be so effect, affecting to a reader may affect them in a different way. So as a writer, who is your obligation to? What do you do with a line like that? And there's no perfect answer. I decided to include it because I think it helped be precise about an important moment in the book of what happens to these soldiers. Uh, but another writer could have gone the other way, and, and that decision would be just as defensible. One might ask the same question about the, the language. Um, I didn't count up how many times the F word appears. Um, there's got to be hundreds. Yeah. It uh, turns out soldiers say that a lot in war. Yeah. Uh, I think Ernie Pyle said they even insert it uh, in the middle of a word. <laughs> it's It's an interesting thing when... When there can be a three-word sentence, and and that's the word three times, but it's spelled a different way each time. 
So you saw some pretty gruesome injuries. Um, how did you take care of yourself um, to avoid PTSD? Is there anything you can do? Here's why I'm glad you asked that question. So I was with those guys for, uh, as I said, eight months out of, out of, and they were on the ground for 14 months. I was not with them every moment, but a substantial amount of time with, with several crucial differences. One is um, that I didn't carry a weapon. Uh, that's a pretty huge difference. Uh, so anything I say and anything I talk about in my experiences, believe me, I understand I'm describing the experiences of a reporter, not who's trying to understand the experiences of a soldier. I didn't carry a weapon. Number two, I got to take breaks whenever I needed to. So every four, five, six weeks when, when it was getting to me, I could get in line for a helicopter, take the helicopter to the green zone, walk my way out of the green zone, get picked up by the Washington Post armored car and be taken to the Washington Post Bureau where I could spend a couple of days sleeping in, having a drink, not worrying about bombs going off and mortars going off. It happened, but not, it wasn't a minute-by-minute worry as it was on, on this uh, base where I was and the soldiers were. Huge difference. And in the end, and this is, this is the point I want to get to, in the end, the deployment ends, everyone returns to the States, including me, and I return with a huge pile of notebooks and notes, this, the chronology of the deployment. And then I got to basically spend the next nine months engaging with that material every day to shape it into a story, to shape it into a narrative. You know, and there's this old line, and I'm going to say it badly, but stories are the only things that keep us from going crazy, turning the arbitrariness and, and, and the absurdities of life into a story helps make sense of things. And, and so it was for nine months. I got to engage with this material every day and f- change chronology into narrative. That's incredibly cathartic. And, and so this is the third difference. The soldiers, of course, don't get that opportunity. They come home, and they're not on troop ships anymore. You know, we're a little faster now than World War II. One day you're in a war in the most extreme place imaginable, and a few days later you're back in normal America, still working this extreme tempo, and suddenly back here. That's incredibly jarring, and there's no attempt to help people make sense of it. Now, maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe that's too touchy-feely. We shouldn't have to do that. But I think what's going on now and what I talk about in the second book and portray is part of the residue of soldiers on their own, veterans now, trying to understand what became of them while they were in war. They don't have the chance to do it. The only ones I've met who really, for the most part, get the opportunity for wholesale engagement are the ones who have reached the point where they have to be in PTSD or other mental health programs. When, when consideration is finally forced on them as a tool of recovery. I think you describe in, in the, the first book a couple of instances where somebody comes home briefly for leave, and that is very jarring. Is it, was it Cummings who— It's all of them. All of them. All of them got 18 days to, to leave, to come home. And, and as soon as you hit, you hit the ground in the U.S., uh, you're starting to count down the clock until the moment you have to go back. And—, and and why aren't I over there? What's happening with my buddies? Did they get blown up today? Shouldn't I be with them? I mean, they're just, they're just, I mean, maybe somebody listening will think, well, sure, that's the way war goes. And that's the point. That's the way war goes. So what I write about in these books isn't just this war. It's pretty much any war, any time. This is just the current example of it. There have been, uh, uh, America's had 12 years of war. Two million folks who have gone into these wars, and a substantial subset of them have come home mentally wounded, in some ways degraded, and trying to figure out, who was I over there? What do I do now? How do I heal from that experience? And, and we can dismiss it all we want, but it's, it's not the war over there anymore. It's the afterwar that's here. And that afterwar is in your book, um, Thank You for Your Service. Um, how was reporting that different? Did you have to have a whole different way of approaching things? Well, it's the same, it's the same journalism I've been doing uh, through my career. The difference 
is that the good soldiers was was is is a document about men at war. Thank you for your service is uh, a document about what happens to some of those soldiers and their families once they get home. Um, the good soldiers was physically difficult and and often frightening terrain. Um, thank you for your service is, I mean, we're back in good old safe USA, but uh, now I've embedded with, with families going through some of the most intimate, painful days and nights of their lives as they try to recover. And in many cases, recovery means just trying not to commit suicide in a particular day. So, so this is pretty tough psychological terrain. And, uh, and you know, I'm obviously grateful to the families for, for who knows what their motivations are, but, but for letting me uh, uh, hang out with them long enough uh, to be able to tell a story about not just what they're going through, uh, but all kinds of families across the country. And again, just like the first one, it's not a policy book. It's not agenda-driven. It's, 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 it's very much um, in, in, in the category of intimate journalism. It's all true. The names are real. What's going on in the book was observed. This is what's happening. And, uh, and I hope people will read it. I, I mean, I really hope people will read it. So... You know, if we want to talk about the title of this one, thank you for your service. We know the phrase, it's ubiquitous. But I think, I think stories matter, and I think these stories matter. And I think if you read this book uh, and you say that phrase, the next time you say it, you're going to have a clear-eyed understanding of who you're thanking and what you're thanking them for. That must have been strange, um, observing a couple trying to sort things out and they're screaming at each other. Did you feel somehow invading their privacy? I've spent a lot of time with these folks and it didn't, it's not so much invading their privacy, but sometimes you just want to step in and solve it. You know, you want to become a social worker or a counselor or something and that's, that's clearly inappropriate. That's not my role at all. Uh, I want to do the best I can not to affect a story, not to manage a story. Yeah, there were times I'd be in the back seat of a car and in the front seat, uh, some people were just going at it. And you just kind of want to say, Mom, Dad, stop fighting. <laughs> you know? but, but that's not the deal. You got to let it play out, right, and see where it goes. It's kind of a weird job. How did you decide where to be? Let's go back to what I was saying earlier about how I came to choose um, Yemen as a place to write about uh, in to bring abstraction into specificity. So I knew I wanted to write about uh, what happened when these folks come home, but, but that's a lot of folks. And, and how do you do it so it feels like a story with characters to follow and, 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 and things to, to appear and resolve and the rest of it? So I decided that there was a guy in the first book uh, who I got to know as he left the war. Great soldier, uh, but he reached the point where he cracked open and he couldn't fight anymore. And despite the fact that he was on his third deployment and had been in combat for a thousand days and had a reputation as one of the best, if not the best soldier in that battalion, when he left the war that day, he was, uh, he was feeling awfully guilty and, and cloaked in some, some shame. And uh, I stayed in touch with him. And then when I decided to do the book about the afterwar, uh, I thought, well, let's just start with him and his wife, and then just build, build it out from there. So, so basically everybody in the new book is somehow connected to this guy and his wife. It's a cluster of people. And it's, it's not just because um, they're all related. It's not all his story. But they, they all were in the same company, in the same place, at the same time in Iraq. And they all live near each other. And now they're all in their own ways trying to recover. And, and they interact. They know each other. So that's the, that's the way I chose to tell this story. Describe one cluster, and maybe people will realize, you know, there are a lot of these clusters across the country. So just tell the story of one. Both of the books perhaps could be made into movies, um, but would they work? Is it too much of a downer? Well, it depends on the interpretation, right? It's, uh, uh, the books have been optioned. Uh, books get optioned all the time. Uh, I don't know if they'll ever become 
uh, movies. I mean, I hope so, because this is an important story, and and it's not like people are are flocking to it. It's this has been inter- the second book has been interesting. It's 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 an important book, I think, and and in many ways, as a book, it's it's more successful than the first one, but it's hard. And once people start reading it, they stick with it. But, you know, uh, it's not the easiest thing to get uh, a lot of people to read this story. So, so I'm trying. I love talking about these guys, these families, what they're going through. But even if the book becomes a bestseller, that's nothing compared to what a movie will do. So if there's a good movie about what these folks are going through, then the story actually gets out there. And it may not you entirely to what I've written, uh, but the point will get across, and, uh, and then it becomes, it becomes real. Uh, even though it takes a movie to do it, then a lot of people know the story rather than assume they know the story. That's a great thing. It's become common to refer to the people you write about in both books as heroes. Are they? Well, ask them that and believe their answer, and, uh, and, and I think we know what the answer will be. Who is satisfied in that? Who, who does that description satisfy in the end? The person hearing it, the person saying it, what is the need for that term? I, I, that's, that's kind of an interesting question you've, you've posed here. But, but I think the answer best comes from the folks themselves. I'll tell you a quick story, though. I was, I was on a Southwest flight uh, and uh, waiting to take off, and the pilot comes on. And he says, folks, uh, I've been told by the flight attendants we have a couple of people on board in uniform. Uh, I hope you'll join me in a big round of applause for our heroes. Everybody starts clapping on the plane. I immediately text a guy from the battalion who, since the book has come out, I've become friends with. I said, Brent, I'm on a plane, a Southwest flight, a couple of guys in uniform on board, and uh, the pilot has asked us all to clap for them. What do you think? And he wrote back right away. He said, well, I hope you're clapping for them because they're American heroes. Either that or they got liquored up last night and they're on their way home to be chaptered out of the Army. (laughs) So the guys get it. You know, they know. That's a good closing message for our listeners. As that brings us to the conclusion of this conversation, our guest today has been David Finkel, MacArthur Prize author of The Good Soldiers, and thank you for your service. David, thanks for being here. Thanks a lot. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. The program you just heard was recorded in February of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.